I have never heard more anger and dismay than when we announced that the people you're about to see were on our list. I mean, last year we had the cast of Jersey Shore, and no one said a word. But there's something about the multi-million dollar empire known as the Kardashians that really gets under people's skin. But I've got to tell you, I don't think the Kardashians mind one bit. They must sit there every day and go, um, uh, Kim, just thank you so much for... Remember when you sucked that guy's dick and taped it and then released it and leaked it? Oh, I don't know how it got in. Thank you so much because now I'm on the cover of Sports Illustrated and I'm going to parties with Gucci Mane and, you know, yeah, great. Advice for Chris Humphreys and uh, Kim Kardashian? The first advice is, you dumbass nigga, you shouldn't have tried to wipe the bitch, man. She's not that type of a hoe. And it's nice to see really hardworking, talented get, uh, talented folks get acknowledged and, you know, and also Kendall Kardashian. It's impossible to make it in Hollywood without a reality show. And um, when I came up in this business, you made a sex tape, you were embarrassed, you didn't hit it under your bed. I mean, I love the fact that you showed everyone what a real ass That's a real ass. I mean, that was I mean the that's point a white girl's ass, but it's real ass nonetheless. Yeah, it is better. It's anything's better yeah. than that fake piece of shit. I know. Please, you think I'm gonna hang out with Kim Kardashian? Don't you don't watch reality TV, I take it. I like the, I like the shows where they actually make something. Uh -huh. So if it's food or you know clothing, yeah, like it's fun when they actually uh, do something. Know, do something. Right. She gets around, man. You see, when Reggie took the bitch to Africa, she was looking at the Africans because they had bigger dicks than his. I, you know, and and it helps having a. a, a an awful, shallow whore of a mother, you know? So <laughs> that helps That helps as well, to, to whore out your kids. You know what? I would, I would beat the crap out of Kim Kardashian, actually. Any girl who, like, is famous and idolized because she made a sex video with some guy, and that's, like, all that she's known for, oh, I got my fame from sucking dick, I think it's stupid. Sorry. Let her do what she was born to do. Ho. Yeah, ho. Punk, bitch. How do you not know who their Kardashian? First what of all, what should I? Exactly. All right. So clearly, a lot of people have problems with the Kardashians. They're some of the most famous and successful women on the planet. So why is the reaction against them so intensely negative? Some people's reasoning is pretty transparent. Kim Kardashian once had sex on camera, which is enough documentation to get her forever deemed a slut, as if that's a thing to condemn rather than celebrate. Criticism that I personally find more reasonable is the fact that the Kardashians engage in a number of problematic behaviors. They have a long history of cultural appropriation. Their proximity to black culture specifically has prompted accusations of exploitation and fetishization. I just found out backstage that you are 4% black. I am 4% black. So actually, if Lamar and I weren't here, you would be in trouble. <laughs> Some of their businesses have been exposed for stealing the intellectual property of smaller creators, and many of those same businesses have engaged in questionable labor practices. They also embody restrictive beauty norms that they financially benefit from maintaining as a marketing tool for various products. All right, guys, I am so excited to announce we are launching three new pieces of shapewear. Still, if you look deeply enough, all those moral sins have been committed by other generally celebrated celebrities as well. 
Looking at my typical area of expertise, every modern pop star has committed some act of cultural appropriation during their career. Beyonce's Ivy Park has been accused of stealing designs from other brands and producing products via sweatshops. And everyone from Katy Perry to Lady Gaga to Rihanna and more has either launched their own beauty brand or partnered with established cosmetic companies where their standing as conventionally attractive public figures is an asset to sell you shit. What I love about this primer is that sometimes I can just get away with wearing it and it gives me this like dewy, fresh look. Clearly there's something about the Kardashians specifically that makes them easier targets for controversy. Plenty of people that hate the family don't have specific reasons at all, or if they do, it's feigned reasoning used to justify the real source of their disdain, the fact that the Kardashians exist or to be more generous, that they exist so publicly. The phrase that's become synonymous with the celebrity of the Kardashian family is famous for being famous, meaning their celebrity status wasn't established through any of the occupations we typically associate with fame. They don't act, sing, write, throw balls into a little hoop, or whatever it is that men do that's supposedly more legitimate. Though actually, Kim Kardashian has dipped her toes into the music industry, but thankfully for her, she's not known as a recording artist. for being famous is a derogatory phrase meant to imply that whomever the label applies to hasn't actually earned their prominence within our culture. It's a condemnation on the individuals the idiom describes, but it's also a commentary on how many people view celebrity culture as a whole, as something vapid, unimportant, and lowbrow. We've all met some smug prick in our lives whose claim to intelligence is the assertion that they, as an intellectual, don't care about celebrities like the average plebeian does. Like, I couldn't even name a Kardashian. I'm too busy reading books. Typically these people are men, or the pick-me's that emulate men's idealized vision of femininity. You know, the kind of girl who thinks eating pizza makes them different? I didn't have famous people on my wall. I was obsessed with animals. I still am. Like, I'm a nerd. In case you haven't noticed, I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. I don't fit in, and I don't want to fit in. It's not that cis-hetero men don't participate in celebrity worship. A 2019 survey actually reported that men were more likely to be swayed into purchasing products with celebrity endorsements than women were. But celebrity culture as we generally think about it is a mostly feminized space of interest. When you think of celebrity culture, you likely think about glitzy award shows, tabloids, trashy reality TV, and entertainment news like that on the E! channel. The audience for all those outlets is dominantly made up of women, especially young women. This makes sense as women are also more often the subjects of interest in celebrity-driven media. But we should clarify what a celebrity is before we can really dive into how the concept functions as an industry. A celebrity isn't merely someone that's famous, meaning well-known for an esteemed or notorious act. 
In his book Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity from Bronze Age to Silver Screen, Greg Jenner defines celebrity as a unique persona made widely known to the public via media coverage and whose life is publicly consumed as dramatic entertainment and whose commercial brand is profitable for those who exploit their popularity and perhaps also for themselves. All that means is that there are some particular requirements to being considered a celebrity. You have to be famous, of course, in that you're known by a substantial amount of people you don't directly interact with but who interact with your image or persona through a mediated source. I've never met Dr. Anthony Fauci, but I'm well aware of his existence given his publicity through the COVID-19 pandemic. He's famous. Dr. Fauci is not, however, a celebrity. He doesn't fulfill the second requirement, which entails, as Jenner puts it, having his life publicly consumed as dramatic entertainment. In all the times I've seen Dr. Fauci on my TV screen, personal developments in his life aren't the topic of discussion, unlike figures like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, whose past marital strife has been a trending topic on social media for months this year. Depp and Heard are examples of Jenner's third qualification as well, as their dramatic private lives have prompted strangers to profit from coverage of their personal narratives. The recent trial between the former couple helped other creators generate content for their own brands, with legal experts, psychologists, body language, experts, I'm putting expert in heavy quotation marks for that one, making countless reaction videos online to benefit their own careers. Celebrities don't just make money for themselves. Their popularity as public figures contributes to the success of tabloids, news programs, online commentary communities, and brands that use celebrity endorsements in their marketing along with those in other industries as well. If the whole world woke up tomorrow and everyone decided that they no longer cared about celebrity narratives, a whole lot of people would be out of a job. Because celebrity as an institution is built somewhat on the invasion of celebrities' private lives, women are found at the center of celebrity gossip more often than men. Historically, a woman's role has been within the private sphere of our society as a homemaker and child-rearer. The public sphere has traditionally been dominated by men, so it's understandable that when women have entered the public sphere as public figures, much of the public still holds a reflexive interest in famous women's private lives. Who are they fucking? When are they gonna have kids? Where do they hang out? What kind of shampoo do they use? Interpersonal drama is especially of interest, making celebrity entertainment equivalent to a real-life soap opera, another genre of media pretty explicitly associated with a female audience. Women's interest in celebrity culture might seem counterintuitive given the constant scrutiny famous women endure by outlets that narrativize them. Tabloids are notoriously sexist in their assessments of women's sexualities, appearances, life choices, etc. So why are women the most reliable audience for media that makes judging other women into entertainment? Let's set aside that women low-key love judging other women. We're also well aware of the world's judgment of us. In episode 2 of the BBC series Ways of Seeing, an almost mandatory watch for anyone that studied visual arts or feminist media theory, 
John Berger speaks of women's typical perceptions of their own image. Men dream of women. Women dream of themselves being dreamt of. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. Women constantly meet glances which act like mirrors, reminding them of how they look or how they should look. Behind every glance is a judgment. Sometimes the glance they meet is their own, reflected back from a real mirror. As women, we're socialized to police our own bodies and behavior constantly. Tabloids, along with other forms of media, basically act as training manuals disguised as entertainment for how to do that. What we see, we internalize. An article in the Daily Mail tearing apart Meghan Markle for her allegedly contentious relationship with her husband's family doesn't just affect Meghan. It implicitly tells all women to be consistently agreeable to everyone around you, or else you'll be seen as difficult or vindictive. Constant self-policing is perhaps what makes celebrity entertainment appealing to women. Not just to notice all the ways famous women get shamed to determine the boundaries of our own behavior, but also because there's something slightly cathartic and relatable about watching other women be watched. A woman is always accompanied, except when quite alone, perhaps even then, by her own image of herself. While she is walking across a room, or weeping at the death of her father, she cannot avoid envisaging herself walking or weeping. From earliest childhood, she is taught and persuaded to survey herself continually. She has to survey everything she is and everything she does, because how she appears to others, and particularly how she appears to men, is of crucial importance for what is normally thought of as the success of her life. By inviting cameras into their homes to document their lives, the Kardashians have made their private existences a work of entertainment for millions of unfamiliar eyes. Throughout the series, I want to emphasize how this sort of eternal exhibitionism could affect the Kardashian family on a psychological level. I don't think most of us could properly conceptualize what it would be like to invite the world into your intimate business the way that celebrities like the Kardashians have. But more so than men, I think women are able to understand what it's like to feel like a public commodity just from existing. There's a big difference in scope between getting catcalled when you're walking down the street and logging into Twitter to see thousands of strangers discussing a candid photo of you. But they aren't all that separate in ideology. Women are socialized to expect and be receptive to unsolicited comments on their bodies, but at least the women who find themselves as trending topics on social media have a level of influence and power and wealth that most people, especially those of marginalized communities, couldn't likely acquire. Perhaps that's why women are more likely to idolize the famous-for-being-famous public figures that men are more likely to mock. And that's why the disdain some people have for celebrity culture is, you'll never guess it, just misogyny in disguise. There are good reasons to dislike the Kardashians, or to just find them uninteresting or undeserving of their immense success. However, many people have taken genuine critiques of this family that's often acted irresponsibly with their platform, along with the culture that gave them that platform, and amplified those arguments in such extreme ways that it's apparent they've just weaponized valid criticism to make fun of the Kardashians as a group of women, 
or to undermine the intellect of the Kardashians' dominantly female fan base. Negative depictions of the Kardashians are often blatantly sexist, but by ascribing the family with things we as a society pretends to be beneath us, like materialism or trivial celebrity gossip, we give ourselves permission to mock them as caricatures for a certain kind of femininity. Take, for example, early parodies of the Kardashian sisters on Saturday Night Live, where the cast's impression of the women involves an absurdly nasal voice inflection that's a bit less than accurate. Here are the Kardashian sisters' real voices. I'm Kim Kardashian. I'm Chloe. I'm Courtney. And here's how SNL portrays them. Oh, I'm Kim, the pretty one. I'm Courtney, the smart one. And I'm Chloe. <laughs> Obviously, an impression doesn't have to sound exactly like its inspiration to be effective, but SNL's version of Kim, Courtney, and Chloe are so detached from how the sisters sound and act that without the specific use of their names and direct references to things that they're known for, it'd be impossible to know who the comedians are supposed to be imitating. They're not meant to represent the Kardashians as people, but as what an audience who's only heard of the Kardashians would imagine them as, caricatures of dumb, rich women. Compare that to the Kardashian spoofs of the YouTube channel SimGM Productions. The actors in this sketch don't have identical-sounding voices to the sisters, but they're obviously familiar enough with the family's reality show to have a grasp on each woman's cadence. What drinks are you both gonna order? I don't know. I've never been here. I've been here like a thousand times. You should get the orange soda. It's amazing. Okay. What would you ladies like to drink? Orange soda, please. I'll have the strawberry soda. Me too. Strawberry soda. I am so shocked and betrayed right now. Courtney and Chloe have completely thrown me under the bus. Not only do the creators know how the Kardashians speak, their parody of Keeping Up with the Kardashians accurately pokes fun at the kind of drama that could become the plotline of an actual episode. Clearly, the people working at SimGM Productions have interacted with Kardashian media before, unlike the writers at SNL who seem to know nothing about the family other than the fact that they sell things and their celebrity is built on an arguably silly foundation. This year, literally, count your blessings. I'm thankful for our new line of perfumes. I'm thankful for our workout DVDs. And I'm thankful that four years ago, my sister made a sex tape with Brandy's brother, and now our whole family is famous. So cool. I had fun. Again, they aren't making fun of the Kardashians or their personas. They're making fun of the idea of the Kardashians based upon their reputations as dumb fame whores. Now, Kim Kardashian actually did a pretty good impression of her sister Courtney when she hosted SNL a few months ago. We'll talk about that entire night more in a future episode, but for right now, what's relevant about Kim's SNL gig is the relief that I felt when I went onto social media after the show ended and saw mostly positive reviews for her performance. I didn't even watch the SNL episode live. Because of the podcast, I've been paying increased attention to the Kardashians recently, but I've never really been a huge fan of the family. At least not enough to feel like I have stock in how well one of them does with any of their ventures. 
I'm not waiting by the TV to root for them like I am anytime Lady Gaga attends literally any award show. But I knew how obnoxious the whole country would become if Kim Kardashian bombed on live TV. People would mock her as a talentless reality star or a dumb slut with a sex tape, and neither of those criticisms are productive or fair. Whether or not I stand Kim Kardashian, it's disturbing to watch people be so nasty to another human being based purely on their preconceptions of their character. When the SNL gig was announced, plenty of people were already deeming the decision to let Kim host a disastrous mistake. Deborah Messing tweeted her confusion with the announcement, which Kim addressed on the first episode of the family's new Hulu show. Listen, I'm the underdog. Everyone just thinks I'm like a ditz. A girl from Will and Grace came out and said that she has no idea why I would be chosen as a host, but it's like, why do you care? I don't comment to tear people down, especially another female. Like, that's what you think, dude? Then like, cool, like, tune in. Deborah's comment wasn't even that bad compared to the disdain the Kardashians are usually met with. When Kim and her then-husband Kanye West were revealed to be on the cover of Vogue in March of 2014, Sarah Michelle Gellar tweeted that she was canceling her Vogue subscription in response. Buffy will get back together with her vampire boyfriend after he loses his soul, murders her teacher, and tortures her surrogate father figure but she draws the line at a reality star getting the cover of a fashion magazine. What people don't like about Kim Kardashian in particular is not that she's famous for being famous, but that she sought that fame shamelessly as a primary goal. Like with beauty, our culture socializes us to see fame as a valuable accomplishment, but we only value that accomplishment as long as it's presented as incidental. Women especially are pressured to fit into conventional standards of physical attractiveness, but if it's too obvious that you're actively trying to look attractive, you'll be deemed shallow and narcissistic. You have to act like you're only pretty on accident, like the thought of trying hadn't occurred to you, despite feminine beauty standards pretty much necessitating some amount of maintenance. Men aren't told to put on mascara in order to look awake. But once you've become successfully beautiful in society's eyes, you better not acknowledge that you're aware of your achievement. Very, very few celebrities become such by mistake. It's absolutely possible to live a comfortable life as an actor or singer without ever needing to appear on a red carpet or interact with mainstream celebrity culture. Most of them on some level like the fame that comes with their careers, or at least they like the inflated salaries that accompany fame. A majority of celebrities could opt out of the entertainment industry if they really minded the attention. Tom Cruise has made enough money that he could have retired a decade ago and lived the rest of his life in affluence so long as the Church of Scientology doesn't take all of his earnings. You're stepping over a line now. You're stepping over a line, you know you are. But we'll be seeing that man leading blockbusters for decades to come. He likes being famous, and much of the general public is content to let him be. 
Kim Kardashian is different because she's open about being a fame-hungry attention whore, something other celebrities keep quiet to feign humility. I don't want my picture taken. I don't want people to see what outfit I'm wearing. Every time there's paparazzi, I cover my face. A lot of people, including other celebrities, find her presence in the media ideologically offensive for that reason. Since Kim is the family member that enabled the rest of her family to enter the celebrity world, for the rest of this episode, we're going to focus primarily on her, and we're going to try to answer two primary questions. Why did Kim Kardashian seek fame so aggressively? And how did she actually obtain it? If you had a business that you were passionate about, then you would know what it takes to run a business, but you don't. Let's start with why Kim wanted to be famous. First off, a lot of people want to be a celebrity. Multiple surveys over the last decade have reported that today's children aspire to be famous, often through social media or on platforms like YouTube and TikTok, more so than they aspire to have specific careers. The appeal is obvious. Celebrity status is typically accompanied by unimaginable riches, plus they get free shit, which is so unfair, access to places, people, and things that the average person couldn't come close to, and privileges that soften any negative consequences for illegal or immoral actions. For a child of the Kardashian family, the appeal is perhaps even harder to ignore. In the first episode of this series, we discussed some of the circumstances of the eldest sister's upbringing. They were certainly wealthy already, as the children of a successful attorney and eventual stepchildren of a famous Olympic athlete, and their family's connections with big league celebrities left them in constant proximity to the entertainment industry. Robert Kardashian Sr. was known as one of the attorneys who worked on the O.J. Simpson trial. Before he was a suspect for murder, O.J. was an acclaimed football player with a charismatic personality well-suited for his initially successful transition into TV and film. O.J. was hella famous, as was Robert's ex-girlfriend Priscilla Presley, former wife of Elvis Presley. Kris Jenner also ran in circles with the rich and famous. In addition to marrying an Olympian, the daughters of Kris's second marriage are the godchildren of Kathy Lee Gifford, who Kris befriended during her first marriage. Growing up, the Kardashian kids were surrounded by celebrities. In high school, Kim's first boyfriend was the nephew of Michael Jackson. Her 14th birthday party was literally held at the Neverland Ranch. Being a celebrity means being in an unofficial club with automatic access to other celebrities. I don't particularly desire fame for the attention's sake, but I'd do shameful things to get the opportunity to be at the same parties as Beyonce and witness her in a natural setting. If much of the people around you are invited to the events of Hollywood's elite, but you're too much of a nobody to get invited yourself, that's probably a good motivator to get some more attention in the media. There's also the factor of potential narcissism. Kim, would you stop taking pictures of yourself? Your sister's going to jail. Now, before we start really talking about this, I want to clarify what I mean. Narcissism is a word that gets used a lot colloquially to mean self-absorbed or vain with an explicitly negative connotation. You'll see plenty of people online calling any seemingly selfish celebrity a narcissist, and it's typically a label used to chastise someone with a poor reputation. Unsurprisingly, it's dominantly applied to women. 
I wanted to find examples of celebrities accused of being narcissists, so I typed in narcissistic celebrities on YouTube, and this was the first result the algorithm assumed I wanted to see. Has Amber Heard ruined Johnny Depp's career for good? What dark secret has Jada Smith been hiding for so long? And why is Angelina Jolie still blacklisted in Hollywood? Stay tuned because we've got all the intel on the narcissistic wives of Hollywood. I want to get us as far away from that kind of uninformed analysis as we can. When I refer to narcissism here, I am using the term as it relates to mental health and psychology. Though I'm not an expert on those subjects, I've read enough about personality disorders like narcissism to know that applying that label as an explicit condemnation of someone's vanity is a bit problematic. Saying someone is a narcissist as a plain adjective is whatever, since the word is in our collective vernacular that way, but accusing someone of having narcissism in reference to the psychiatric disorder just because you think they're shallow and mean is, um... It's definitely a no for me, dog. It is maybe true, though, that celebrities are more likely to have a greater amount of narcissistic traits than the average person. Psychologists S. Mark Young and Drew Pinsky, aka Dr. Drew, star of the film New York Minute, conducted a study involving 200 celebrities over a 20-month period. Using the narcissistic personality inventory, they concluded that celebrities are significantly more narcissistic than the general population. They state that the research failed to show a relationship between NPI scores and years of experience in the entertainment industry, suggesting that celebrities may have narcissistic tendencies prior to entering the industry. To be clear, simply scoring higher on an NPI assessment doesn't mean that one has narcissistic personality disorder. Plenty of traits associated with narcissism are totally healthy and normal in moderate quantities. Having an extremely low score is not a virtue, it's an indication of poor self-esteem. A particularly high score, though, can indicate narcissistic personality disorder if the narcissistic traits are an outcome of a problematic need for attention and validation. That need is not just problematic for the people around them. Many of those with NPD do become abusive toward others, but it's not a disorder explicitly defined by how it affects those outside of the narcissist like we sometimes conceptualize it as. The narcissist is also suffering. They have a compulsive urge to create a grandiose persona for themselves to cope with extreme self-loathing or just a lack of identity completely. An upcoming character in the Kardashian story, Julia Fox, actually once shared a post on her Instagram story that said, I either feel like a god or like I don't exist. There is no in-between. As I understand the disorder, that's a pretty good representation for a classic narcissist. Dr. Drew writes in his book, The Mirror Effect, quote, to protect his flimsy self-esteem and avoid the pain of the inadequacies he constantly feels, the narcissist creates a pseudo-self, an idealized version of himself, and consciously or unconsciously projects it out to others to prime that continual stream of admiration and desire. As long as the pseudo-self remains firmly in place, the narcissist can continue to believe he's in control and capable of getting what he wants from others without exposing any real needs or vulnerabilities." Unquote. 
it makes sense that someone with a need to erect an idealized version of themselves and receive constant praise would gravitate toward a career in the entertainment industry where fame is always a potential outcome for success. Intense narcissistic traits often develop as a coping strategy from surviving a traumatic childhood, especially one in which attention and affection had to be earned through grandiose behavior. I am not in any way saying that Kim Kardashian has NPD. I don't have the qualifications to diagnose that, but to be honest, just from what I've seen of Kim and what I know about narcissism, I really don't think she qualifies. I know that might be disappointing to some people who think that narcissistic personality is a bad person disorder and Kim Kardashian is a bad person, but I really don't think she has that many symptoms. I'm so sorry. Kim likely would, however, get a higher score from the NPI than the average person, and that's not surprising given her background. While Kris Jenner and Robert Kardashian did seem to take their roles as parents seriously, there are a number of circumstances that could have reasonably led Kim or her siblings to invent a grandiose persona for themselves. In her book, Chris details an affair she had while still married to Robert, an affair that seemed to make her occasionally emotionally unavailable as she almost started to live a double life. All of the children from Chris's first marriage have admitted to feeling shocked, confused, and resentful when their father caught Chris in her affair, after which Chris was unwilling to mend the relationship with her husband and the two officially separated. Divorce can be a traumatic thing for any family to go through, especially when infidelity is involved. And shortly after their split, the family dynamic became even more volatile when the Kardashian parents found themselves on opposite sides of a contentious and widely publicized murder trial. With Robert Kardashian working around the clock on his best friend OJ's case, Kris Jenner was similarly involved with the prosecution side given her friendship with OJ's alleged victim. I say alleged, but he definitely did it. Both parents set their focus onto a celebrity scandal that was also dominating the attention of the entire world. Not only that, after her divorce was finalized, Chris quickly married famed Olympian Caitlyn Jenner and began working as her manager. The two primary authority figures in the Kardashian kids' lives were often occupied handling the concerns of folks more famous than them. Chris especially took her role as a manager seriously, dedicating much of her time to securing the best possible promotion for her then-husband. Her work ethic is still infamous to this day as a momager to her six kids. Family members have joked that Chris's favorite child is whoever happens to be earning her the most money at the time. None of this is to imply that Chris wasn't a good mother. I'm sure she loves her children unconditionally like most parents do. But she was a career-driven woman who was ready to seize on any opportunity for growth that came her way. Not really a traditional matriarch. With her kids knowing how much she was trying to make a name for herself and her family in the entertainment industry, it's not unreasonable that they may have felt subconsciously pressured to participate in that quest for fame and fortune themselves. Today, there's still a suggestion that in order to be a part of the Kardashian family, you have to be willing to participate in the family business of fame. I've been watching the Kardashians' new Hulu show, and I'm not sure that Rob Jr. has ever been mentioned in any episode so far, now that he's stepped back from his family spotlight. If he doesn't want to appear on the show or be at the center of plot lines, that seems reasonable. 
but his name doesn't even come up to the point that it's like he no longer exists. I'm sure the family still talks to and about him when cameras aren't around, but by not participating in the show, he's absent from certain milestones in his siblings' lives, like Courtney's engagement party which included all of his sisters, but not him. Thankfully, Robert Sr. spoke often about his distaste for the shallow glamour of celebrity and the invasiveness of fame. The kids at least had one parent to keep them grounded. Until that is, Robert died from esophageal cancer in 2003 at the age of 59. I believe all of our blessings that we have now are because we have a guardian angel, which is my dad by our side. As the eldest, Courtney was 24, Kim was 23, and Chloe was 19. Rob Jr. was and is irrelevant. Sorry, Rob. The loss of their father hit all three kids hard. He had only been diagnosed with cancer eight weeks prior to his death, making the decline of his health feel pretty sudden. The Kardashian children have long stated that their father impressed upon them the value of hard work. I was cut off when I graduated college, and my dad was like, you need to get a job, and like, you have a month, I'll help you find one, but then like, you have to you know, make money and support yourself. I just think that it's actually probably harder. We did grow up with this privileged life, but knowing that at a certain age we're going to be cut off and we can't ask our parents for anything and already having that lifestyle growing up, we want to maintain that. So it's probably even harder for us because a lot of people are doing nothing. And we were taught at a very young age that we're going to have to work and we're going to have to fend for ourselves and whatever lifestyle we want, we have to make that on our own. So we wanted to keep that up and we've done what we could and we've all worked since we were about 16 years old. Kim thinking being born into privilege somehow made her life harder is absurd. The rich have no concept of how hard the average person has to work just to afford basic necessities, especially since being born with well-connected parents automatically gives you opportunities that 99% of the population couldn't access. To her credit, though, they weren't as spoiled as many would expect. When their father died, he left his children no monetary inheritance. All of his money was given to his then-wife, whom he'd married two weeks after his cancer diagnosis with the knowledge that he'd soon be gone. Leaving all your money to a woman you married six weeks before your death seems like the setup of a story with an evil stepmother in the plot, but to my knowledge, the Kardashians have never expressed any bitterness to being stiffed in inheritance, so they're already more gracious than I would be in that situation. The work ethic the Kardashians inherited from their parents would be used by Kim, though, in a hustle to reach the level of fame many of her peers were already achieving. While Kim had the most ambition for life in the entertainment industry compared to her siblings, she actually wasn't the first of her sisters to be on a reality show. Courtney was featured on the flop series Filthy Rich Cattle Drive, where offspring of wealthy industry figures were sent to a cattle ranch to herd cows or something? I intended to watch the entire series because it's only like nine episodes long, but I only watched the first episode because it is just total ass. Courtney isn't super awkward in the show or anything, but she definitely doesn't have the enthusiasm for being on camera that Kim did. Kim was undoubtedly the chosen one. But three of her siblings were offered their big breaks first. Courtney on Filthy Rich, as well as Kim's stepbrothers Brody and Brendan Jenner on The Princes of Malibu. It lasted two episodes, but 
Brody would later go on to become a prominent member of The Hills a few months before Keeping Up with the Kardashians aired. Speaking of The Hills, do y'all remember Spidey? The real ones never forgot. Heidi Montag was an original cast member on the MTV reality show The Hills. Those familiar may already be protesting the fact that I called The Hills a reality show. Practically anything that makes it to your TV screen has manufactured elements even if it's mostly candid, but The Hills was criticized more than most reality shows for being pretty much just fake. To be fair to the series, it did start out more or less real, but plot lines became increasingly fabricated as time went on. A big reason for that was the show's addition of Spencer Pratt, who started dating Heidi during season two. Spencer had been a creator and executive producer on The Princes of Malibu. He also acted as Brody Jenner's manager, publicist, and agent. When Brody and Spencer were first featured on The Hills, Spencer's experience as a reality show producer inspired him to utilize his screen time in any way that would generate more excitement for the show. Successfully driving a wedge between Heidi and The Hills' main star Lauren Conrad, Spencer set himself up as a villain in the series and, by extension, real life. Now, if you don't know who they are, first of all, congratulations. Allow me to explain. They were on a TV show called The Hills that was on for six seasons. It was season before, before I realized that it wasn't really just a really long lip gloss commercial, so frankly, I'm no expert. But I do know that Heidi and Spencer were the demon spawn of that program. And together, they staged a whole bunch of fake photo ops and went on reality shows and basically got paid to go to clubs. Whatever the point is, they got really famous in that bloggy, twittery, TMZ-esque way that people can get famous these days without any actual talent or any intrinsic worth. Together, Heidi and Spencer became known as Spidey, a sort of power couple that specifically gained power from being nationally despised for their unabashed fame whoring. They fabricated multiple plot lines for the Hills TV show. So first they have Heidi fake like she like thinks she's pregnant and needs to get um, a pregnancy test. Okay. That didn't happen. So, okay. so then she tells me that she thought she was pregnant and my response in the scene is, get out of my car. <laughs> so then people are like, you left her on the side of the street. So I mean, you know, look, so the edit is like me, you know, mm, driving the away. Comes on. And right. Heidi's just standing there like, oh yeah. no. And what really happened? What really happened is like 10 times. 15 takes yeah. every angle and she gets in the car and we go to dinner, you know, yeah. so. You, in your real lives, you got yeah. in the car and yeah. went to dinner. Yeah. In real life, they were known for publicity stunts as well. Like the time Heidi filed for divorce from Spencer two years after the couple got married. Spidey later admitted they concocted that story together because they ran out of money and needed to get back into headlines. They also talked openly about hiring paparazzi to take photos of them, and heavily leaned into their own villain narratives throughout appearances on other TV shows, specifically on season two of America's version of the reality show, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, where they portrayed themselves as obnoxious antagonists to other contestants and doubled down in interviews when confronted with their behavior. Heidi and Spencer, Pat, good, Pratt, good morning. Good morning. Now, there are those who say that you guys are the poster children for everything that's wrong with celebrity in this country. How, how, how did you I think that? that was just Paul Kalegdi that said that mm -hmm. from NBC. Well, what's, I mean, you, when you look at this stuff uh, that uh, you have on this tape, it, do, do you have any regrets about doing what you do? I was actually going to ask your producers to get a copy of that little highlight reel because mm -hmm. that was one of my favorite things I've ever watched. Annoying as Spidey may be, 
though I think they're couple goals to be honest. They represent something I actually like about reality stars or the famous for being famous. The characters they play on TV transcends past a show's runtime. Heidi and Spencer took the personas of their reality show selves and extended the narrative to social media, other TV shows, and general public appearances, and other stars do the same. You think Paris Hilton is actually as dumb as she portrays herself on The Simple Life? I don't what know. What is Walmart? She's like, they sell wall stuff? No. What is it? <laughs> of course she isn't. It's a persona she plays that exaggerates characteristics she's perceived to have. Just because she's sometimes played that persona in interviews doesn't mean that's an accurate depiction of her day-to-day -day life. When I'm on David Letterman or I do these shows, I'm like, yeah. I just sit there and like, it's not me. I just, I'll be a little idiot and say that's hot and talk like a baby. There isn't anything all that different between what Paris, Heidi, and Spencer do and what traditional TV actors do. Like Paris literally had a catchphrase. Tell me how that's hot. Is all that different from... I do that. If you think the Kardashians are hated, though, Spencer Pratt was practically seen as a terrorist. In an unprecedented move, E! News, which literally makes its money off of trashy celebrity gossip, announced a soft ban on Spidey-related coverage mid-2009. Viewers had gotten so sick of seeing the couple's constant publicity stunts that the network responded by promising to no longer cover Heidi and Spencer unless they became involved in a particularly newsworthy event. That newsworthy event presented itself six months later. It may not have been a fabricated story purely to gain press, but it did demonstrate a sad desperation for validation. Joining us right now in the On Air with Ryan Seacrest studio is Heidi Montag. Yes. And I must say, you have changed since I saw you last. Thank you. In January of 2010, Heidi graced the cover of People magazine with the announcement that she'd undergone 10 cosmetic procedures in one day. I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure that's too many. I had an eyebrow lift, uh -huh. I had my nose fixed, I okay. had my lips done, I had yeah. cheekbones, yeah. I had my ears pinned, I had my chin done, yeah. I had my breast done. That I noticed. I had um, <laughs> uh, my waist cinched in on both sides, I had my back scooped, um, back I had scoop? butt what's, uh, injections, what's, uh, and my legs. Is that 10? I feel like it's more. What's <laughs> a back scoop? Yeah. Um, actually, I didn't know before I get I think I might be the first one to try it out, but it kind of uh, carves out your back a little bit oh. more. But you had so a good body. Shook, but, but now I have a great one. This girl got her tits and her back done at the same time. How do you sleep with both major sides of your body recovering from surgery? Do you know how much you have to hate yourself to do something like this in the name of beauty? The surgeries Heidi received were so dangerous, it's kind of a miracle she isn't dead right now. The normal resting heart rate for an adult is about 60 to 100 beats per minute, while under the knife, Heidi's heart at one point slowed down to 5 beats per minute, meaning her heart basically stopped. She essentially did die for a minute, and the poor thing was only 23 years old. To his credit, Spencer did discourage the operations. Spencer said to Cosmopolitan Magazine in 2019, quote, I was there for every second, so I know all about that journey. Let me just tell any ladies and gentlemen and gender non-conforming folks out there, just everyone, the phrase minor surgical procedure does not exist. 
that's the hard lesson we learned. There's no such thing as one minor surgical procedure, and there's certainly no such thing as ten minor surgical procedures. Heidi thought people would stop criticizing her if she got surgery. Everything she did came from people criticizing her in the comments on Us Weekly and People magazine. She brought printouts of what the trolls and haters said to the doctor and said, Can we do something about this? Everyone's insecure, but it's different when you're young and on TV and everyone's talking about you. It's upsetting that you can go to a doctor and say, here's what I hate about myself, and he'll say, I can fix that, unquote. Honestly, woke King Spencer Pratt. The point here isn't that plastic surgery is bad. If you have a persistent insecurity that a safe procedure can mitigate, it's no one's right to police how you choose to improve your own body image. But I hope we can all agree that 10 procedures in one day is not only dangerous, but indicative of a real psychological problem. Heidi since admitted that she should have been seeing a therapist instead of a plastic surgeon, but because of the kind of public figure that she is, the world wasn't empathetic to her pain. It feels like it's acceptable and allowed to talk negatively about my body, where if you did that about anyone else, people would be cancel culture and how dare you and this and that, but for me it's like, oh, it's Heidi, like I'm not a human anymore, which is infuriating. This is the kind of scrutiny women like Paris, Kim, and Heidi are under. No matter the circumstances, they'll be shamed for the cultural biases against them, and though all three of these women have done things that deserves criticism, none of those things justify the dehumanization they faced. But I wanted to bring Spidey and the Hills up for a few other reasons. First is that the Hills is an underrated cultural artifact which in some ways helped lay the groundwork for the Kardashian success. Next time we revisit this retrospective series, we'll talk more about the history of reality TV. But one thing to acknowledge for now is that, while today the term reality show evokes the images of shows like The Kardashians, The Real Housewives franchise, The Bachelorette, etc., it is a very broad category of TV that includes shows like Pawn Stars, Fear Factor, Cops, or even The Price is Right. When the genre started to explode in the early 2000s, the most impactful reality shows were ones like Survivor, American Idol, or Big Brother. Most of them weren't appealing to a super narrow demographic, but as the decade progressed, reality TV became increasingly seen as a sort of feminized entertainment as women dominated the viewership of shows like The Bachelor, The Simple Life, America's Next Top Model, and The Hills, where conflict within a group of female friends was often central to the series' plotlines. For some, the constant catfights on shows like The Hills was viewed as a setback for women, depicting them as over-emotional and petty. Julian Michaels made a criticism of the Real Housewives franchise expressing that same sentiment, accusing Andy Cohen of hating women for how he allows them to be portrayed on TV. Julian Michaels is best known for her work on The Biggest Loser, though, so I don't know if she's in a position to call out the societal harm a reality show can cause. But anyway, is the portrayal of women on the hills in similar reality shows perfect? No. But we can't deny that we do live in a culture that encourages women and girls to compete and fight with one another, making the drama depicted on the hills something more or less relatable for its female viewership. And the same could be said about the relatable sister dynamic on Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Both shows appeal to the same audience, and The Hills' success helped prove that there was profit to be made in marketing to that audience. 
though the economic status of the show's stars couldn't be relatable to most viewers. The women on The Simple Life, The Real Housewives, and The Hills were all rich as fuck, giving their shows a sort of aspirational appeal in their depictions of upper-class lifestyles. Seeing wealthy women struggle with much of the same emotional baggage the average woman deals with blended fantasy and reality together. Producers on Keeping Up With The Kardashians eventually did the same, but the longevity of that show along with the astounding success of the Kardashian empire demonstrates how the family learned from their predecessors' successes and failures. Kim K actually seems to have taken some notes directly out of Spidey's book of fame-seeking secrets. I almost mean that literally. Heidi and Spencer did publish a book in 2009 called How to Be Famous. I doubt Kim read it, of course it came out two years after she'd already scored her own show, but some of her tactics to gain publicity are incredibly similar to that of Spidey. In their book, the first piece of advice for getting famous is basically to try to befriend people who are already famous, or at least more famous than you are. They write, quote, it's easier to go farther on a moving train than to start one up for yourself, unquote. It's a strategy that Kim Kardashian was in good position to take as the daughter of a famed attorney and stepdaughter of a famed Olympian. Her family was exceptionally well-connected, and Kim was quick to make her friendships with other celebrities known. So who are some of your clients that you can mention? Catherine Bach, the original Daisy Duke, Nicole Richie, Paris Hilton, Brandy, Serena Williams, Cindy Crawford, Sugar Ray Leonard and his wife, Rob Lowe and his wife, Kenny G and his wife. Spidey also encourages readers to find an existing friend group and fill whatever void is missing within that dynamic, whether that be the villain, the leader, the sidekick, or those with more specific roles. Coming up alongside the rest of her immediate family, Kim benefited off the existing contrast of her relatives' personalities. Even if you didn't relate to Kim herself, on her reality show, any one of her siblings or parents might still successfully charm you, making them stronger as a unit. Other pieces of advice Spencer and Heidi offer are tips like be attractive and make friends with paparazzi. For Kim, that's check and check. Kim Kardashian is obviously gorgeous, and in a way that felt different from other socialites at the time while still being mostly conventional. Her most significant attribute was her ass, as demonstrated multiple times on SNL in another woefully insufficient parody sketch. Sorry, so, so what can you tell us about your sister Chloe's wedding? Oh, it was so fun. There were a lot of really famous people there. Ryan Seacrest, Kelly Osbourne, my butt. It was my plus one. Now, your sister married Lamar Odom from the LA Lakers, and I understand you're dating Reggie Bush from the New Orleans Saints? Yeah, they call us the Bush and the Tush. <laughs> do you get it, Zach? I do, I do. I'm the Tush. Yeah, no, I get it. Because of my butt. Yes. So, are there any wedding plans in your future? Well, Reggie and I had a really rocky year. He was always a third wheel. Reggie, me, and... Oh, uh, let me guess. My butt. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Kim Kardashian, everyone! It seems weird now to think that a butt could prompt so much discourse, but at the time, with incredibly thin white girls like Paris Hilton dominating the scene, big asses were mostly associated with women of color and fetishized as such. 
It's not fair for her to get all the credit with inducing a booty revolution, but as a white girl, Kim's entrance into the Hollywood scene marked the official entrance of big asses into the mainstream. But wait, is Kim Kardashian a white girl? This is a deceptively hard question to answer. She is definitely Caucasian in that Robert Kardashian is Armenian and Armenia is a country located in the Caucasus region, but Caucasian is a really outdated term for white that originates from disproven theories regarding biological race. We should think of race instead as a social construct. Black Americans, for example, have a cultural identity that stems primarily from the atrocities and resulting circumstances of their ancestors' enslavement. Like Caucasian, the label African American, which has been viewed as the more politically correct synonym for Black Americans since around the 80s, kind of misses the point of what race in our society means. If simply being from Africa was enough to get someone classified as African American, a term associated with a racial identity, Elon Musk and Charlize Theron would be considered African Americans. Race, nationality, and ethnicity may be terms with overlapping implications, but they're not totally interchangeable. The effects of racism are contingent on a whole bunch of factors, most of them arbitrary and superficial, like the literal color and shade of someone's skin. The qualifications for who gets to identify as a member of a marginalized group are also constantly shifting. Consider Nicole Richie, another predecessor of the Kardashian style of celebrity. She's the adopted daughter of a black man and the biological daughter of parents with English, Mexican, and Creole African ancestry. On paper, Nicole is barely white, and yet her role on The Simple Life alongside the very white Paris Hilton painted both stars as embodiments of white privilege in popular culture. The Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Civil Rights within the U.S. Department of the Interior identifies five legal categories for racial identity in federal data. American Indian, yes, our government is apparently still using that absurd misnomer, or Alaskan Native, Asian, Black or African American, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, and White. Latino is not measured as a racial category by the federal government, so for many Latinos that don't also have identities as Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, or Black Americans, they are legally considered white, even if that's not their cultural identity. For now, Kim Kardashian meets the legal definition of white, which is a person having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. In a post-9-11 world, though, I think we can agree that most Middle Easterners don't hold much of the privilege that comes from being white. An informal measurement I've seen people using to classify the racial identity of those with Middle Eastern or West Asian lineage is, what are the chances of them getting pulled for secondary screening in airport security? If it's high, they're not white. For Kim Kardashian, that's an impossible measurement. From facial features alone, I'd say she's more likely to get racially profiled than I am, but she also has the one thing more powerful than white privilege, which is rich and famous privilege. That doesn't cancel out the prejudice that comes with a non-white identity. Kim's ex, Kanye West, is hella rich and famous, but he is still a black man whose public image will always be influenced by white supremacist attitudes to a degree that Kim and her siblings won't, given the ambiguity of their cultural identity. So for all intents and purposes, Kim Kardashian is a white girl, but she's racially ambiguous enough to fit into an informal subcategory some would call spicy white? 
That doesn't feel like a politically correct term, but I can't figure out who it's supposed to offend, so I guess we'll just roll with it. Especially in the mid-2000s, when Paris Hilton was Hollywood's representative socialite, Kim was seen as more exotic than her lily-white counterparts. I'm aware of the grossness of that statement, but that's how white America was primed to think of Paris's new dark-haired BFF with tan skin and a voluptuous body. Kim was unique enough amongst Hollywood, but still white passing enough to not really challenge any hard-pressed beauty norms. Even with her being seen as curvy, it was only in the exact places anyone trying to remain conventionally attractive would want curves, giving her an hourglass figure that's long been associated with feminine beauty. So Kim's hot, that we know. It's also observably true that she followed Spidey's other piece of advice to befriend paparazzi. Kim's never admitted to staging paparazzi photo shoots or calling them herself, but she did confess to seeking the paps out. The irony of that is that I remember talking to you once and you were talking to me about how badly you wanted to be famous before all this yeah. started. Yeah. Did you used to call the paparazzi? No, but I knew exactly where they were. So if you wanted to be seen, anytime I would get hair and makeup for the show, there was no way I was going home and washing it off. I would stop off in Robertson. <laughs> I would stop off at the Ivy to pick up right. something to go, even if it was like some bread to go, anything, an empty some bag. Bread to go I would run Ivy. in and pretend like I left it. My, do I leave my glasses here? Isn't you know? that funny? Wow, really? I think I can talk about it because it's like, it's so funny. And just, I think people need to be more honest about those moments in life when you're just super desperate and want that. Nick Lachey is also pretty sure Kim called paparazzi to take photos of the two of them when they went on a date to a movie theater. She's denied it, but it would certainly have been a smart move since theirs was the first date Nick had been on following his highly publicized divorce from his ex-wife and reality TV co-star, Jessica Simpson. Is it rude to call paparazzi on your date without their knowledge or consent? Yes. But it's Nick Lachey who really cares. Kim was desperate to become a celebrity. She already befriended a number of other celebs, working with people from Cindy Crawford to Serena Williams to Lindsay Lohan as a closet organizer and stylist. Her most famous client was Paris Hilton, the it girl of the era and Kim's best chance at getting photographed beside a bona fide celebrity. A former friend of Kim's named Kevin Dickinson was working at In Touch Weekly around this time. He alleges that Kim did, in fact, call paparazzi to photograph her on her date with Nick. He also claimed that Kim would give him stories about herself to put in In Touch, but said the editors at the magazine would always back out before anything got published. Kim was told she'd have to get on TV before she could be tabloid fodder, so she got herself a cameo on The Simple Life alongside Paris. What's going on with this? That is if I ever go to India outfit. Really? Yes. Are you planning on going? Yes. But don't you have to, like, cover up everything? You're not allowed to show any of your hair. You would have to, like, your hair? Cover up your hair. It's like a law. Are you allowed to have blonde hair? <laughs> Even if you travel there, you really have to do this? I think so. Or you'll get, like, shot or something. That's hot. For the record, nothing in that clip is true. And though Kim is barely on the show, her occasional brief appearances did the trick to get her onto magazines. 
She was still primarily known as Paris Hilton's friend or the daughter of one of O.J. Simpson's lawyers, but that would soon change. Within the Kardashian family, when it was still the Kardashians as a unit before Chris filed for divorce, Rob Sr. appeared to be the unquestioned head of the household, who all major decisions were deferred to. With that dynamic along with Robert's tragic passing, I do think the Kardashians developed unhealthy relationship patterns that frequently causes them to prioritize men's comfort and validation over their own well-being. Whenever I see a girl bending over backwards to please a man who ain't shit, I call what they're suffering with dumb bitch syndrome. It's a harsh name, but most women will suffer a bout of it at some point in their life it's nothing to be ashamed of, you can recover. With the exception of Kendall though, whom I think is waiting to tell us something, I've seen every daughter of Kris Jenner exhibiting symptoms of chronic dumb bitch syndrome, which I fear may be hereditary. Kim started exhibiting dumb bitch symptoms early. At 18, she met and began dating music producer Damon Thomas, who was 10 years older than her. A year later, the two eloped in Vegas, which Kim's family discovered through rumors followed by a Google search for their marriage license. Now, I'm gonna call getting married at 19 an overall dumb bitch move. But I wanna be clear, I am NOT calling Kim a dumb bitch for what would happen next. After getting married in 2001, Kim filed for divorce in 2003, alleging to have suffered mental and physical abuse at the hands of her husband. I won't go into the details, but I read a bit of the court filings, and it is really heinous. Damon, of course, denied the claims, but I see absolutely no reason for Kim to lie. Even if you think she would make up an allegation like that for attention, to which I would already say you can fuck off, the only place the allegations exist is in the court documents for their divorce. She barely even talks about that marriage publicly. In addition to denying the allegations though, Damon went on to disparage his ex in the least surprising way, telling In Touch magazine, quote, Kim is obsessed with fame. She can't write or sing or dance, so she does harmful things in order to validate herself in the media. That's a fame whore to me. It's just not cool at all, unquote. You know what's not cool to me, Damon? Domestic violence. Of course, the first relationship of Kim's you're likely familiar with is the one she shared with the recording artist Ray J, aka Brandy's brother. A trigger warning is in order for the next bit. If you don't already know what's coming, we'll be discussing a story that touches on topics of sexual abuse. In 2002, after splitting from Damon but before she officially filed for divorce, Kim and her new boyfriend went on a vacation in Mexico with a video camera. Together, they filmed a sex tape that's now known as Kim Kardashian Superstar, which was released by Vivid Entertainment in 2007, a few months prior to Keeping Up With The Kardashians' premiere. There's a misconception that the sex tape is what led to the reality show, but Keeping Up was already in plans to shoot prior to any news of a tape. The E! Network had been planning a reality show with Lindsay Lohan, but Lindsay dropped out before shooting. When Kris Jenner called Ryan Seacrest to pitch the idea for a TV show featuring her entire family, Ryan knew the network had a slot to fill in the network's lineup, and the Kardashian family had reality show appeal. Their last name was somewhat known due to Robert Kardashian's publicity on the O.J. Simpson trial, 
and Chris's then-husband was known as one of the greatest athletes of all time. Kim was also best friends with Paris Hilton and worked as a stylist for a number of other celebrities, and Courtney and Chloe ran clothing stores that could showcase some upper-class California style as fashion became an increasing interest in mainstream pop culture. On Live with Kelly and Ryan, Ryan Seacrest talked about how he advocated for the show. I, as a producer at the time, was looking for my first series to produce. We met and I remember they were gonna do a barbecue at their house. And she said, why don't you send a camera up and shoot this barbecue? Yes. I said, great, we'll do that. Oh, and wow. Elliot Goldberg, who worked for me at the time, he went up with the camera on a weekend and he shot this barbecue with all of them. And there was, you know, there was, there was yelling, there was laughter, there were hugs. It was all of the, the, the ingredients to make a great show. So he, he came back and he said, this is incredible. And we made a seven minute tape out of it. Yeah. And we showed that to E and I called Ted and I said, I know I'm not supposed to go over your head or call you, but I really think this is magic. Right. And he said, but you know, usually we need 15 minutes of tape and all this stuff. So he said, let's do it. So keeping up with the Kardashians would have existed with or without the sex tape. Would it have gone on as long as it did without that extra publicity? We'll never know because in January of 2007, Stephen Hirsch of Vivid Entertainment met with someone who held footage on a computer of Kim and Ray J's tape. Who this person is is still unclear. Hirsch told Page Six, quote, It wasn't that they were representing the people in the video. It definitely wasn't, because Kim was not involved in it. It was that these people had the footage and they were looking to sell it, unquote. A writer for the New York Daily News published the story announcing the existence of a tape on January 17, 2007. Kevin Dixon, Kim's then-friend at InTouch magazine, got an alert for the story and contacted Kim, who'd been in Australia with Paris Hilton. He told Page Six that while he talked to Paris on the phone, he could hear Kim crying in the background. She said the person in the tape wasn't her, it was a woman then known as Superhead, now known as Corinne Steffens. At the time, some reports were incorrectly claiming that the video included footage of sexual activity involving urine, which likely prompted Kim to believe that it wasn't the tape she'd filmed. Kevin Dixon said, quote, So Kim denied it and denied it and she was denying it and crying it at the same time. Paris was like, I'm gonna get my lawyer to look into this. If anybody else comes out with stills, if anyone starts offering clips, any proof that it's Kim, call us. At the magazine, we were exploring whether and how to cover the rumors because at this point, the editor saw it as finally a break in what we could do with Kim." Unquote. Now the next quote is from Stephen Hirsch and it's crucial, both for reinforcing the appeal of this tape along with Kim Kardashian's rising celebrity, and for the issues we'll discuss in a second. Hirsch said, quote, It took a little bit of research to figure out what was going on with her family, and she was Bruce Jenner's stepdaughter, and her father represented O.J. Simpson, and then I did some research on Ray J and saw that people knew who he was, but that his sister, the singer and actress Brandy, was very well known. So there were these pieces that came together, and I thought, wow, this is super interesting. Everybody would sort of in some way be connected to her because they knew somebody who was an intimate part of her life. The next step was trying to get a deal done. She wasn't involved in that. It was trying to get a deal done with the people who had the footage. They had guaranteed that we would be able to distribute it. I questioned that as time went on. I think we announced we had the footage, and that's when we started getting legal letters from Kim's attorney." Unquote. 
Kim filed a lawsuit in February in an attempt to stop the tape's release. Persistent rumors have claimed that Kim leaked the tape herself or that her mom did it. Some have even gone so far as to say the whole thing was planned from the start, not just the release, but the filming too. Straight up, that doesn't make any sense. The video was filmed in 2002 and released in 2007. So first of all, why would they wait five years to leak it? They didn't know they would have a reality show in five years, so what opportunity were they waiting for? Why was it not released then? Second, why would they have plans in 2002 to release a sex tape, period? To get famous? There wasn't any precedent for them to think that would work. Yes, there had been celebrity sex tapes before, but those were the tapes leaked of people who were already celebrities. When Pam and Tommy's tape hit the internet, Pamela Anderson had been a series lead on Baywatch for three years, and Tommy Lee had been the drummer for Motley Crue for over a decade. It was a celebrity sex tape because they were celebrities. The first time someone became notably famous for a sex tape was when Paris Hilton's tape was released in 2004. Why would the Kardashians concoct a plan to become famous through a sex tape in 2002 when no one had ever done that before? And again, why would they sit on it for five years to promote a reality show that hadn't even been pitched to a network yet? People have this concept of the Kardashians that they're these conniving witches of Hollywood with so much insight into the industry that they can predict whole new methods of gaining celebrity power before anyone else has even attempted it. Don't get me wrong, Kris Jenner is a smart businesswoman, but she's not fucking clairvoyant. If she was, she probably would have prevented her best friend's murder. But she's a human being, not the evil mastermind pimping out her daughters like so many people think she is. So okay, maybe they didn't plan the tape's release when filming it, but they did sign off on the release itself. Kind of. After filing a lawsuit against Vivid for announcing the tape, Kim eventually settled the lawsuit and was paid roughly $5 million for the tape's release. In that way, yes, Kim allowed it to be released by not pursuing the lawsuit further and eventually agreeing to the deal Vivid offered. But there is no evidence that she was a part of the initial plan to publicize the tape's existence. We don't know who brought the tape to Vivid or how that person got it. Corinne Steffens told Page Six that Ray J was conflicted about whether to sign off on the release himself, but her recollection does imply that he was more optimistic about the tape's publicity than Kim was. Corinne said Ray J thought it would make him white girl famous, finally bringing him out of his sister Brandy's shadow. Needless to say, it did not, which has reportedly really bothered Ray J. Personally, if my sister was Brandy, I think that I would just be grateful, but I guess we're just different that way. Stephen Hirsch stated, quote, It was a very difficult time, and ultimately we were able to come to an agreement. It was a very difficult deal to get done. Probably the hardest deal we've ever done. Kim did not want it to happen. I know people have speculated on whether she planned the release of the tape from the beginning, but the facts are the facts. A lot of nonsense has been reported over the years, the persistent rumors about Kris Jenner, Kardashian's mother, being involved in selling the tape are such nonsense. I don't know who started that. People don't want the truth to get in the way of a good story. I had no contact with Kris." I'm not going to put it past Chris to convince Kim to settle with Vivid and take the $5 million deal, but that doesn't mean Chris or Kim leaked the tape themselves or that they were in agreement with Vivid from the start. 
The idea that the Kardashians planned this as promo for their show just doesn't have substantial evidence. People pointing out that the timing is suspicious because it was released prior to Keeping Up's debut are overlooking the fact that whoever presented that tape to Vivid was trying to make a profit. That profit's probably going to be maximized with the most public interest possible. Kim's sex tape might have been good promo for her upcoming reality show, sure, but that upcoming reality show was also good promo for the sex tape, and whoever had the tape likely knew that. This is the same situation as with Paris Hilton's sex tape, which was released online by an ex-boyfriend shortly after The Simple Life's premiere, exactly when the tape would have been noteworthy. No matter what you think about Kim Kardashian's tape, I assure you, Paris Hilton did not leak her own, and she's been open about how traumatizing the experience was for her. The ex who filmed the tape, Rick Solomon, a professional poker player who later married Pamela Anderson, was 32 at the time of the filming, while Paris was only 19. Not illegal, but not ideal. Paris has claimed she felt pressured into filming the clip in the first place, saying she was out of it the night of. I'm not proud of it, but when I was a teenager, I did watch the tape. Curiosity got the best of me, and I didn't really question the popular narrative that the girls these leaks happened to somehow benefited from these invasions into their privacy. Even as a teen, though, without a full understanding of exactly how abused Paris had been by this incident, watching her tape made me feel grosser than any other leaked picture or video I sought out. It was obvious that Paris wasn't having fun, and though it's never been confirmed, I wouldn't be surprised if she had been under the influence of something at the time. At one point, I remember Paris complaining on the tape while she gives her then-boyfriend a blowjob. She says something like, I don't like doing this. And that lines up with another memory I have from watching one of Paris's reality shows. I don't know what show the scene was in, but I distinctly remember Paris telling someone else on screen that she didn't like giving blowjobs. Now, I couldn't find that clip anywhere. No matter what else I wrote around it, typing the words Paris Hilton and blowjob into Google didn't exactly give me the search results I wanted. But I know the clip exists and I bring it up to draw your attention to these jokes told by Sarah Silverman at the MTV Movie Awards in 2007. Paris Hilton is going to jail. I heard that to make her feel like more comfortable in prison, the guards are gonna paint the bars to look like penises. I just worry that she's gonna break her teeth on those things. The joke here is that Paris Hilton is a nasty slut who loves sucking dick so much she would chip her teeth on steel bars that looked like penises. And yet, Paris Hilton doesn't like sucking dick. Teenage me remembers because teenage me, who'd never even touched a penis before, was already horny enough to know that this was a topic me and Paris disagreed on. Regardless, like with the SNL Kardashian jokes I played earlier, what Sarah Silverman said in that clip is far more based upon society's idea of Paris Hilton. She's reduced to being a whore with a sex tape. To Sarah's credit, she did apologize for those jokes later, and Paris accepted that apology, but this is where society was at in 2007. 
In her own words, the leak of the tape made Paris feel like she'd been electronically raped. Not only did she never give any indication that she approved of the video's release, she sued the company that distributed the tape for $30 million for invasion of privacy and the infliction of emotional distress. The judge threw out that case for reasons unspecified in court documents. Clearly, Paris was a victim, but popular culture continued to deride her as a slut and poor role model for young girls. Hey, I know! Let's make a videotape of us having sex with boys! What? I just got the Stupid Spoiled Whore video playset! Stupid Spoiled Whore video playset! We can make videos to get out on the internet! Yeah! Stupid Spoiled Whore video playset! Show the whole world what a slut you are! Stupid Spoiled even supposedly feminist women were getting in on the action, like Tina Fey who told Howard Stern Paris was the worst host during her time at SNL. Trigger warning for transphobic language and also general shittiness. Paris Hilton, I would kill myself. She's like, a she's, piece of, she's she, a piece of shit. Yeah, she has no right what to be on that What did she do? That was she, so... Was every, she takes herself super serious. Because yeah. she's dumb. She's so dumb. She's so proud of how dumb she is, and she's... She looks like a tranny up close. Her hand, her hand is like from my elbow to the end of my hand. And she walks on for a chick like who grew up. Bigger than yours. She walks dumb. Right. For a chick who grew up in like New York society, she walks like. I don't she, she walks, walks like, like a woman. Like now, why exactly was Paris the worst host ever? Maybe because she didn't want any of the show's jokes to center around her sex tape. Why, why is she a nightmare, specifically at Saturday Night Live? Well, she, you know, people never come in and say, like, I'm not doing that or whatever. So she gave this guy, Jim Downey, wrote this really, really funny sketch. Um, it was like, you know, supposed to be like Lauren just finding out that she had a sex tape and being like, oh, I, I didn't know about this. You can't host the show. I'm, we have standards here. And, also. Right. and she's like, I'm not doing it. And she was like, you know, wouldn't come out of her dressing room. Seven. Oh, so you locked herself in the dressing right, room. No, nobody does that stuff. You know? and, and also we would walk down the hall and you'd find like, just like a nasty like wad of what looked like Barbie hair on the st like on the stairs and be like this came off her head. What do you what, what do she you mean? Like, like she's she, her, is, is she going bald? She has her hair is like a fraggle. And you know, as a fellow bleach blonde, sometimes her hair just falls out. Okay, why are you being mean about it? I'll tell you why. Cause you are a mean girl. You're a bitch. It's just so ironic to me that Tina Fey wrote that movie. But whatever. One thing people will say to prove Kim Kardashian, Paris Hilton, and whoever else must have been behind the leak of their sex tapes is that it would be illegal for someone to distribute a private video without the star's consent. The Huffington Post published an article in 2010 that made about the same argument regarding Kendra Wilkinson's sex tape. Jeremiah Reynolds writes, quote, Kendra had to consent to the release of the tape in order for a well-established company like Vivid to release it legally, unquote. Yeah, if only that were the world we lived in. This is really important because a naive appeal to the righteousness of the law to stop the distribution of sexually explicit material without the subject's consent implicates so many more people, especially women, than just celebrities like Kim Kardashian. The law around these sorts of issues is super spotty. In Kim's case, a big issue for her ability to stop the tape's release is that she wasn't the video's copyright holder. 
It was Ray J's camera. He was the one filming. He owned the copyright. If he were willing to sell the tape in order to be white girl famous, he may have been able to even without Kim's consent. Anyone who watched the video can see that Kim clearly knows she's being filmed. Even if she didn't agree to the tape being distributed the way it eventually would be, she clearly consented to being on camera. Without some written agreement about the terms of the video's distribution or lack thereof, what happened to the tape wasn't really up to her. Now, there were some moves Kim could have made to potentially stop the tape's release, but none of them were guaranteed wins. Theoretically, she could have sued for an infringement of privacy, but given the fact that she was pretty obviously attempting to become a public figure and was about to start filming a reality show, she already put herself into a position in which her rights to privacy would be limited. When Hulk Hogan sued Gawker for publishing a clip of his own leaked sex tape, attorneys for Gawker argued that they were legally entitled to share the clip under the First Amendment, saying that Hogan was a public figure who'd spoken openly about his sex life in the past, so the the video was a matter of public concern. Hogan and Gawker eventually agreed to a settlement, but the same argument was used against Pamela Anderson decades prior when a judge decided she couldn't legally stop the distribution of her own sex tape because her image as a sexualized celebrity made the tape newsworthy. Pam wrote in Tommy Lee's later autobiography, quote, it was great sitting through depositions where old men would hold the pictures of me naked in Playboy and ask why I'd even care that the tape was out there. I couldn't handle it. It got to a point where I could not go to another deposition with these sweaty old guys asking me about my sex life." Unquote. Remember, Paris Hilton's lawsuit against the release of her sex tape claiming an invasion of privacy was straight up thrown out by the judge. Kim may have seen some success if she had argued for her right to publicity. Since California has so many celebrities, they do have a lot of laws on the books to protect public figures' right to control their own public images for commercial purposes. Perhaps Kim could have won her case by claiming the tape was too damaging to her image as a celebrity, but there was no guaranteed outcome for that pursuit. She could have easily gotten in front of a judge who told her she should have thought about her public image more before she consented to having sex on camera. At that point, Vivid would have pretty much been free to release the tape, and what would Kim have gotten? Publicly slut-shamed and victim-blamed while a bunch of men made money off her exploitation. Let's note at this point in 2007, California had no laws preventing the release of what we now call revenge porn. Even the revenge porn laws the state did enact in 2013 are written in such specific ways that they likely wouldn't have protected Kim. But at least the concept that sharing private photos and videos without someone's consent is a big no-no is something we take seriously today. If I haven't made it clear already, that wasn't the case in the 2000s. Stupid spoiled whore, video play set, let everyone see your cooch. I'm pretending to be calling my friends on the cell phone while my man waits for more sex. You're a stupid spoiled whore. Personally, I wish Kim hadn't dropped her lawsuit. Choosing to make a deal with Vivid sends the message that this type of harassment and violation of privacy isn't as big of a deal as it absolutely is. Even if she had lost the suit and the tape was released anyway, at least she could say she never complied with the creeps that wanted to exploit her. But truthfully, I can't say that I wouldn't make the same choice in her position. Her options were to either fight Vivid to the nail and risk losing just for the tape to be released anyway, or let the tape be released and take the $5 million you're being offered. 
even if Vivid didn't distribute it themselves, whoever presented it to them likely had a copy of the tape that could hit the internet no matter what Kim did. So yeah, Kim ultimately agreed to have the tape legally released. She is still a victim in this situation, which many people are hesitant to accept simply because they don't like her. So many of the arguments used against Kim, though, don't just affect her. If our culture unanimously believed in protecting victims of sexual abuse, we wouldn't need laws banning revenge porn to begin with. It'd be common sense that sex tapes like Kim's and Kendra's and Pamela's and Paris's and countless other victims, both famous and non-famous, should never be publicized without every participant's clear written consent. Yet again and again, we see people having to battle this shit out in court just to try to protect their own privacy, and far too often failing when pitted against the institutions that profit from their abuse. So I'm not calling Kim Kardashian a dumb bitch for how she handled the sex tape or the fact that she was victimized in the first place, but where she does start to show some symptoms is in how outrageously cordial she's been with Ray J following the ordeal. Who's to say if Ray J would have let the tape be distributed himself if Kim ultimately hadn't agreed to the deal? I personally think he would have, but we'll never know, and we still to this day don't know who originally arranged for the tape to be brought to Vivid's attention. But the dude is a fucking pig regardless, who was clearly willing to sell his ex out for some clout. This whole sex tape saga has extended to 2022, and we'll get into his continued bullshit in future episodes, but just for the record, Ray J is someone who's been accused of sexually assaulting women multiple times, and who released a song bragging about how he fucked Kim Kardashian prior to her then-husband Kanye West. The track was tastefully called I Hit It First, and in case you couldn't already guess from the title and the subject matter, the lyrics are a little demeaning to Ray J's ex. Think of Ray J as the Justin Timberlake to Kim's Britney. No matter how much time goes on, he continues trying to profit off his brief association with her. Still, Kim has been tolerant when dealing with Ray J. Occasionally, she has released statements defending herself against him, but when push comes to shove, she deals with that conflict pretty amicably. Recently, when Ray J posted screenshots of text messages between the two of them following reports that a new version of the sex tape existed and might be leaked, something Kim was understandably upset about, the conversation shows Ray J being a manipulative baby while Kim is consistently kind and accommodating. She apologizes to him because he spun her words into something she clearly wasn't implying, assures him that she'll get her team to release a statement defending him, and thanks him for giving back the raw footage of the original tape in 2021. You should not be thanking an ex for giving you the footage of a sex tape you two made almost two decades ago. It's kinda weird that he held on to it this long to begin with. But that's the sort of low bar for tolerating a man's behavior that gets you a dumb bitch diagnosis. Kim isn't a bad role model for young girls because she had a sex tape. Even if she had been the one to leak it, she's allowed to do whatever she wants with her own body. In today's political climate, if powerful women are going to model anything for the younger generation, I think a sense of autonomy is a good way to go. 
the Kardashian family's unwavering loyalty to men that regularly fuck them over, however, is not my favorite. But in a lot of ways, it is that loyalty that got them where they are. Chris maintained a good relationship with Robert Kardashian even after he defended her best friend's murderer and abuser. It was through him that she secured most of her professional contacts. Kim never trashed Ray J in the ways he probably deserved because without the release of their sex tape, the Kardashians may never have gotten the amount of publicity they capitalized on to get to where they are now. As much as Kim doesn't want to be defined by the sex tape, and rightfully so, how that situation was handled says a lot about the Kardashians' values. The event was personally traumatizing to Kim. Her privacy was violated, her body was violated, and she continues to be slut-shamed for a private moment to this day. But far less than I think most people could stomach, she expresses such little bitterness towards those that caused and or enabled her trauma because she knows that that experience is ultimately what made her famous as she now is. Starting in 2007 with the release of their reality show, the Kardashians will endure a level of scrutiny from the public, sometimes deserved, sometimes not, that the average person could never survive. Seeking fame means inviting the abuse of strangers into your life, but for the Kardashian family, success matters more than being a happy, healthy person. And that's going to be a running theme throughout the rest of this series. Next time, when we come back to this Kardashian retrospective, we'll discuss the first three seasons of The Family's first of many reality shows. Now, I'm not sure exactly when that episode will be up. I had a schedule planned out for the next few weeks, with a new retrospective series starting next week. I don't want to give away the subject of that new series, but it's one close to my heart. Unfortunately, this episode was late, as per usual. I have a full-time job, and putting these episodes together myself is just a lot more challenging than I was hoping with the amount of free time that I have. So in order to make the episode uploads more consistent, I'm gonna start releasing episodes on Fridays, and the next two or three episodes are gonna be a little more casual. The topics aren't gonna be as research-intensive, and I'm not gonna be cutting in clips or background music or anything. It's just gonna be me talking about whatever subject I choose to talk about, which should cut down on the pre- and post-production time so I can actually treat this as a weekly podcast. I'm gonna try to be as consistent as I can, but unless someone wants to just give me like a whole bunch of money, I'm on that 9 to 5 life and I don't have as much time as I really want to to put into this project. But I hopefully will see you on time next week. Okay, bye!